Subscribe to the next 12 weeks of The Spectator, in print and online, for just £12, and we'll send you a copy of associate editor Douglas Murray's new book, The War on the West, worth £20, absolutely free. Join the party today at spectator.co.uk forward slash Murray. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and my guest this week is the New York Times reporter Andrea Elliott, whose new book is Invisible Child, Poverty, Survival and Hope in New York City, which has already scooped the Pulitzer Prize and been nominated as one of Barack Obama's favourite books of the year. Andrea, welcome. Now, this story didn't start as a book, did it? It started as a piece of journalism, a huge piece of journalism, it should be said. Can you tell me how you, how you met your invisible child, how this story started for you? She was invisible to me uh, when I became interested in her story. Her whole world was not known to me. And I think that's precisely what drew me in was just how shocked I was by this other New York that I shared my city with and yet had really little, had noticed so little. The project really did begin with sort of traditional shoe leather reporting. It was, uh, it's my favorite thing to do, a lot of knocking on doors. And what I was trying to do is get inside the life of poor American children, because I had seen this statistic that kind of shocked me, which was that one in five children were growing up poor in America, the richest country in the world with the highest child poverty rate among developed nations in the world. So I looked far and wide. I went to different states looking for the right story, what felt like the right story. And by the time I met Dasani standing outside her shelter, her homeless shelter in Brooklyn, I really was more than anything keen on finding a child who could just articulate what she was experiencing. That mattered more to me than any kind of backdrop. This project began with me seeing a statistic, which is that one in five children were growing up poor in America, and that was shocking to me, given it was the wealthiest country in the world with the highest child poverty rate. I've always felt most drawn in to stories that get inside statistics that uh, illuminate what the statistic means. (laughs) And so that's what drew me in, was the quest to find a child whose world I could step into and better understand what it means to be growing up deeply poor in the richest city, in the richest large country in the world. And that's New York. New York is increasingly a place where the rich and the poor coexist and the middle class has hollowed out. And this is what we're seeing in cities across the world with rising gentrification, which is a term that was coined by sociologists from your country. And so, of course, we see it in London as well. And I I just wanted to know, what is it like to grow up poor in such a wealthy place, surrounded by it? Because this was a relatively new experience for children in poverty in urban America. Jasani's mother had grown up in a very different city. It was way more segregated and separate. And so I met her by standing outside. Geographically separate. Geographically separate, siloed. So the best way to kind of understand this story, and it hit me pretty early on as a framing for the story and a way to contextualize it 
in a broader sense in terms of history is with the names of the two main people in the book, Chanel and Dasani, the mother and the daughter. Chanel was named after the perfume when her mother was pregnant with her in the 1970s at a, in a part of Brooklyn that was very, very separate from white New York and from wealth. And the magazine ad that she saw for Chanel perfume was sort of the closest she could get to this better world. Another generation passes. Chanel is now pregnant with her first child. And by then, the wealth has arrived to Brooklyn. And the bottle that she sees, that she aspires to name her child after, is the Dasani bottled water, like Evian, something that struck her as a true luxury. And But yet it's right there in front of her. She can hold this bottle. She can't buy it because she couldn't afford it, but she loved the sound of it. And so I think embedded in the names of the mother and the daughter is this really interesting historical arc that shows the reader and showed me for many years what the story was all about. It was about finding my way through as a reporter this new terrain of being poor in a vastly unequal America and what that meant for a kid like Dasani coming of age in that environment. And when you met Dasani, she was seven, is that right? She was 11. Sorry, 11. She was 11. She was older than that. When I met Dasani, she was 11 years old, and she had been chronically homeless. She was the second oldest of eight siblings and their parents. All 10 of them were living in one decrepit room in a shelter that was closed off to the public, and it was in a very wealthy part of Brooklyn where you were seeing this thing play out between the rich and the poor every day because... The only poor folks who could stay moored in that neighborhood were those who were either in the shelter or in public housing. So they had subsidies, in a sense, that kept them there. And everyone else who was moving in was spending millions of dollars to move in. And so she was growing up inside this room, overrun with mice and with moldy walls and a dripping pipe. It was Dickensian, and yet... Every day, she would step outside and pass townhouses worth millions of dollars. And it was the contrast of those two realities, of those two things that were her reality, that made me very interested in seeing how she processed that and and would she transcend it, would she reach beyond it? Um, How did it impact her imagination for her own life? Now, you mentioned that there's a sort of, obviously, a very obvious and gaping gap between a rich and predominantly white Brooklyn and the extremely poor and predominantly black Brooklyn. But there's very kind of, certainly in her school life, in her life in public school when we first meet her, she's looking at a whole series of, you know, even among the poor, poorer children, of kind of status subdivisions. You know, she doesn't want anyone to know that she's living in a homeless shelter. Absolutely. Nothing is black or white in this book. And I've always rejected that way of seeing the world. I'm constantly reaching for what is confusing (laughs) in my work. Uh, And I feel like the more confused I am and the more drawn in by the nuance, the closer I am to some portrait of truth. I think in all of these worlds, they're in both the wealthy part of Brooklyn and the poor part of Brooklyn. There is a hierarchy at play. There is a sense always in New York City that 
whatever you have is not enough. Someone else has more. Someone else has less. I think Dasani was keenly aware of her position in this hierarchy, and she was at the bottom of it, being homeless. Living in a homeless shelter was something to hide. It's also the case that there were people who belonged to the so-called middle class who were the people working with her, the teachers and the caseworkers, the people in her school, but they were increasingly being pushed out as residents. And this also is a story that unfolds in the book itself, where Dasani's greatest mentor in her public school, Faith Hester, winds up being, as she put it, gentrified out of her neighborhood in Brooklyn. This is a woman who got out of the projects. She's African-American. She went on to go to college by being bused into a white neighborhood, and she got two master's degrees, and with all of that, went back to serve her community and then wound up herself in the shelter system because she was evicted because her neighborhood was flipping so rapidly. And that was stunning to me, but it is something that the data show in terms of the homeless population. One-third of the parents in the shelter system are working. So right there we know that there is a serious affordable housing problem in the city and also in the rest of the country, for sure. Now, it is a staggeringly full and detailed and extended work of reporting. I'm curious as to how you, if you like, got in, because as you write somewhere in the book, for Dasani and her family, every time they meet a white person, particularly a white person holding a notebook, that almost always means trouble. This is Exactly the case that I represented trouble for sure from outward appearances. I was yet another outsider potentially there to intrude if a white person showed up in Chanel's, this is the mother, neighborhood growing up. She saw it as cause for alarm. It meant that somebody was being evicted. It meant that somebody was dying so they were pushing a gurney, this person, or this person was there to take away the children and put them in foster care, or this person was there to investigate accusations of parental neglect. Whatever it was, it wasn't good. (laughs) There were some white do-gooders, as Chanel would put it, who were there to help nuns in particular. There are a few that stand out. Georgiana Glos was one very heroic nun in the neighborhood. But these were not people to be trusted. And I knew that going in, but I didn't know it more than in my head, and I began to experience it viscerally once I was there in the community. So you have this idea, you know that you're an outsider because of the color of your skin. It's different when you show up and you feel the room palpably change. The energy in the room, the faces, uh, the expressions on people's faces. The only really antidote to that, I think, is time and showing up again and again and again. And I think if there's one thing I do well (laughs) as a reporter, it's that I'm stubborn. (laughs) I don't give up. I I actually have been accused of wearing people down. (laughs) I once embedded in a mosque for eight months. They just got so tired of saying no, like, okay, fine, let her in. What is she going to do? And, you know, I have... My work, I showed the family my work. They are avid readers, the parents, and they absorbed my work very closely, and they saw I offered 
to connect them to anyone I'd ever written about and have them ask that person, was she fair? Was she not fair? Have your own private conversation with, which was a little risky in retrospect, but I just thought, look, they're taking a big risk. I need to show all, all of my cards. And I talked my best game as a reporter, right? I was trying, and it wasn't really a game. It was the, the pitch, the honest and authentic pitch that, that, that was driving my story, which was I want to get inside the experience of being poor because I think it's a story that isn't told enough. And, and I can do this. Here's an example of all my work. And yet you can say your pitch and you can present it in the most persuasive language you you can possibly muster and yet none of that matters anywhere close to as much as your presence and the interactions that happen outside of verbal language I think I think that they had spent a lifetime the parents in particular guarding themselves against the intrusion of outsiders and therefore were very good at observing people and they were observing me as closely if not more closely than I was observing them and so what I quickly learned in my reporting experience with this family was that it really had to be a two-way street I had to be willing to answer as many questions as I was asking that idea of the two-way street this really immersive personal reporting. How did you deal with those observer's paradox questions? I mean, you're in particular on a really obvious level. You know, you're watching a family go through in the course of your seven years of reporting extraordinary moment-to-moment difficulties, and yet you can't intervene. So one way I had of confronting that, I think, was precisely that, was to talk about it, was to keep the paradox, as you put it, of my work. If I were to unpack that a little bit, by the way, I would say the paradox is that I'm there as a human being who cares, and at the same time, my very job, which is what brought me there, which made me care, is what prevents me from following through in the way that I would normally follow through if I were not there to do a job, if I were there to fully become a part, for example, of this family, which I could never have considered myself a part of the family, but they saw me as an extended sort of (laughs) family member in a way because I was around so much. And so I think we had to talk about it constantly, and it was something I was also working through in my own mind and wrestling with constantly. And all these years later, what I would say about it is that I don't have any kind of absolute truth to offer about the right way to carry out this work. I think it's very important to do this kind of work. And I think that it's a tremendous privilege to be brought into someone else's personal space. And the price of that privilege is to constantly wrestle with it and second guess whether you're doing it the right way or not and be open to stepping back or maybe stepping forward. I would not say I never intervened. I did find myself unable to see the children 
going hungry, for example. I documented it, but I would also run out with them and get them a burger. I just couldn't help myself. And I, I, I think that it's okay. You know, when I entered into this work, I had this very binary view. It's like, I'm the reporter. They're the people I'm writing about. The rules are the rules. Part of wearing my reporter hat means that my feelings take a back seat and I have to be very guarded about my feelings. I think that the transformation I've experienced through this work is one that shows me that not only is it okay to have big feelings, it's probably essential to reaching the kind of intimacy that I wanted in my writing. And I think just the more you feel, the greater the burden is on you to eventually step back and make sure that the way you're portraying the events has as full a representation to it as possible, meaning that you're considering all the other sides. It doesn't mean we really ever reach objectivity, but we strive for some balance. And so I had a lot of people reading behind me, and great editor and a great agent, Tina Bennett, who was very, very focused on making sure that because the, the voice in this book is a very intimate voice, and that comes from a personal place. I couldn't achieve that had I not engaged on a personal level with the material. And I saw things that I cannot unsee, and they got inside of me. The story got inside of me in a way that nothing ever has. I think one of the most, for lack of a better description, life-changing uh, moments of my time with this family was the day that I witnessed the children being removed from their parents. These were children I had gotten to know very, very well. I'd known them for three years. I'd spent time on, I'd slept on their floor in their apartment in Staten Island. I'd eaten broken bread with them multiple times and ridden, you know, gone on the train and walked and stood in line and just hours and hours and hours and hours of time with this family. And to then suddenly see them being ripped apart in that way was something that I will never be able to shake. And I think I felt called in that moment to share that with the reader, even though I didn't in that moment think I could write about it because it was so painful to watch. I knew later on that I would have to, and that's where the book begins. And I think it's really important for people to... There was a feeling I had, like, this is so sad and so wrong, and I'm so upset about it, and I'm also determined as an investigative reporter to understand it from all sides, to get inside the documents. I looked at more than 14,000 records to unpack the family's relationship with the city, in particular with the system, child protection system, and I still carried this feeling, though, that it was so disturbing and so upsetting, and I wanted other people to to share in that, actually. I felt like, why do I need to carry this <laughs> by myself or watch the family suffer in this way? Other people need to, to know this. So that was part of what drove, I think, the writing. Well, may I ask, was that moment of the family being broken up effectively what returned you to the story? Because, you know, it was initially a complete piece of reporting and you describe in the middle of the book when your feature on Dasani comes out and on five successive front pages of the New York Times, there she is. And she, they, you anonymized her. The authorities shortly afterwards didn't. And, you know, she became, I think, as one of her schoolmates said, you know, the most famous homeless child in the 
in the world. She experienced a brief period of celebrity. It is true. And that gave me pause. You know, I never stopped reporting on her. Let me start there. After the series ran, I continued to follow her, but I was nervous about the potential impact of my reporting on her life and wondered if I should simply deepen my reporting that had already run and have the bookends be from the time I began my reporting to when the series ran and have that be the book, so to speak, because that was all before she became well-known. What ended up happening was that she faded back into obscurity very quickly. So little changed, even materially, for her. And that reinforced for me that the problems of poverty were far greater than any kind of public outpouring could meet. And things did seem to resume a sort of normal pulse in her life. So I write about the things that I think were... I, I had to write about myself a little bit because obviously it became part of the story. I tried to avoid that. I don't like journalism that's in the first person. It's not about me at all. It's about them. But to the extent that I do, that I think my presence may have impacted things, I wrote about it in the book. But I really think for the most part, I had very little impact. And it didn't return me to the reporting to see the family broken up. I never stopped reporting. The story got inside of me, and I immediately, after it ran, just continued in pursuit of a book without even really making a decision. Like a, I didn't stop and pause and say, should I write a book? It was like it was decided for me. It's, it was bigger than me. And so I continued to follow them, and three years later, the agency in New York City, this, the city agency that monitors families, removed the children from the custody of their parents, who had a lot of issues, but I would argue were very devoted and loving parents, and who were being punished for the problems of poverty and not because they were bad parents, which is so often the case when children are separated in this country. They are separated on neglect accusations, not abuse. And there's a very big and important legal distinction between the two. And so that is what got me, set me down a new path. Seeing that happen, uh, reframed the whole story to my mind as a story about a family trying to survive many systems, of which homelessness was only one problem and attendant system. There were all these other systems that, that the family actually saw as one system because there was so much overlap between them. The same populations were cycling through. And then that got me to look back through history to try to understand how they got there. And it just, the the more I reported, the deeper I went. <laughs> if I knew at the very beginning that I would spend almost a decade uh, reporting on this, I would like to think I still would have, but I would have been daunted um, and I think a few years in, even the family was like, where is this going? <laughs> this is taking forever. Everyone in my family uh, gave up on me multiple times. But it never felt like it paused. I was, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, utterly riveted by their story. I, I felt such an energy around this work. I can't 
express that enough. It felt like it never... I wrote the ending of this book three different times. All three endings are in the book. Two of them end chapters because things kept happening that were so surprising and almost cinematic. I, I felt like I was living inside... This, this could be an opera or a movie. Uh, my mother, who is from Chile, she's South American, said it's a very smart telenovela. <laughs> Uh, she sees it as a kind of soap opera because it's, it is, it's, it's, there's so much is happening and the characters are, uh, I call them subjects and um, one of them said to me, if I'm not a character, no one's a character. You have to refer to us as characters because subjects is too impersonal. So I say characters, even though they're real, These, this is a real story. It's, 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 it's also what's so stunning to people about it is that it feels as you're reading it, maybe like you're inside you know, something almost fictional, but yet it's nonfiction, it's real. And it's based on a lot of neurotic reporting is the best way I could describe it, where I don't trust my own memory. And so I rely on hours and hours of audio recordings and video recordings and other forms of documentation. And the family was, was very instrumental in that. And they helped me document things. And that's how I could move between places and give the feeling that I was in many places at once. Do you trust your characters? I mean, I can think of a couple of instances. I mean, as you describe in the book, you know, both Chanel and Supreme, who is Chanel's husband and, but not Dasani's father, it's a very mixed family. They struggle with crack and opioid addictions. And there are instances where you say this pivotal moment where Supreme say, took some money from Dasani. He denies this. You know, are you finding yourself, you know, people with addictions do tend to lie. Did you find yourself having to sometimes say, I think this is a lie or this is, you know, sifting the truth? I mean, were they unreliable witnesses? It's a fair question. I was very familiar with the ins and outs of addiction because of my brother. What it was like to be working a program, what it meant when you'd fallen off the wagon, what that looked like, what it sounded like. And I talked very openly and directly with Supreme and Chanel about this, and I think that it created trust among us. And to the extent that I was able, I believe, to know when they were working the program and when they might be less reliable. I could tell through the records that we gathered and I could tell from when I was with them how they sounded. I would say most of the time they were trying to stay off of opioids and they were really determined to be sober. The thing about trust is, as a reporter, you really have to trust what you see. And so the things that I reported on when it came to them were things I witnessed. And if I wasn't there, I corroborated it very carefully. I don't think they're less reliable because they struggle with addiction. I think addicts are uh, some of the most sensitive and awake people on the planet. And I knew this from the experience I had with my brother. And so it's just about investing the right amount of time, enough time to really get to know what the full portrait of their addiction looks like and how to honor them when they 
are sharing their greatest truths by, you know, by, by allowing them to do that and trusting that they're doing it. And I think that, you know, we just spent so much time with each other over the years. I never felt like I, and if I was, for example, the example you just gave, if I was a little bit torn between what one person said and another, I would just wrote that. So I think it's up to the reader to decide sometimes. Did you have a sense as you were writing the book or did you come to a sense that what you were seeing was emblematic? Because in the book you start to tease out historical parallels. You talk about the way that this family had been you know, directly affected by the AIDS crisis in the 80s, by the arrival of crack cocaine, by you know, redlining, by the gentrification more, more recently of these areas in Brooklyn. Um, did you start to think this, this stands in for a wider American experience? Or were they always particular? I got to a point in my research where I felt paralyzed by how all-encompassing this book could be. It literally struck me as a book about everything. I think that their life story is deeply emblematic of America's racial divide, of American history, of so many chapters in history. It's actually the most gripping way for people to encounter history is through personal narrative. We saw that in this country, of course, with the musical Hamilton, which my children could memorize line by, you know, sing, recite chapter. I mean, they, they can recite every line in, the, in, in Hamilton. And that was their way of learning about the Revolutionary War. I think that, yes, Dasani's story is not just emblematic of history, it's emblematic of contemporary American problems. One key example of this is that Dasani, who is now 21 years old, but when I met her, she was 11, would strike an outsider as kind of just like this homeless kid with her homeless family who's been randomly assigned to this shelter in a nice part of Brooklyn. They're passing through. They're transient. They're homeless. This is a contemporary, current plight of theirs, absent any context. They're seen as this, this, this thing that's live and moving through and probably best dispensed with. But actually, her label of homeless is, I think, misleading because it is not just a temporary condition. It is built on generations of disenfranchisement. And I've pieced that together through, through the story of her family in this book. We see how the, the way her great-grandfather was treated led to deeper poverty in generations that came after. Just like wealth can generate wealth in families, poverty can also lead to greater poverty. And so there was, I think it was really important for me to be able to show that, to, sh to connect the dots between Dasani's present and her past, her family's past, what happened to her ancestors, and how their struggles explain or partly explain the, all that she's up against the world that she's born into. You mention 
later in the book, another as a sort of parallel or ancestor of your own book, How the Other Half Lives. Now, that was very influential in, as I understand it, in, in attitudes to poverty and in the longer run in policy. Do you have the same hopes for your book? I mean, you criticise a number of state agencies. Do you have ideas about how they could and should be reformed? What I can offer are some observations from the ground, what I saw working versus what isn't working. What I think really worked with this family was when the family got supports that are expensive and were those kinds of programs such as supportive housing where you are guaranteed housing and also um, help finding a job. Maybe there's a social worker or uh, a nurse or somebody who is part of your housing existence helping you through the day. That is expensive and it lacks political willpower and so what ends up happening is those programs are underfunded. Preventive programs, let's just call it that. Programs that prevent families from being split apart. Programs that prevent children from falling deeper into poverty, they're expensive. And so what ends up happening in this country is that we pay for poverty on the back end. The cost of growing up poor and the traumas related to that experience is huge. We know that children who grow up with adversity, this kind of adversity, are more likely to be incarcerated, are less likely to reach gainful employment, are going to have greater health problems, all number, any number of problems, and those are very costly problems. And so I guess I wonder why more investment isn't made on the front end. And if I were to ask how should that look, well, I'd turn back to the story of Dasani's family and point out that this is a family that was living in government-supported housing. The housing was a mess. No one was fixing it. The agency that was supposed to fix it didn't. A separate agency that was responsible for monitoring the family then removed the children, blaming the parents for the condition of the home, a poverty-related problem, and then went on to spend about $33,000 a month on those eight children, putting them in foster care, traumatizing them. It's a terrible system. If they had just spent a fraction of those funds on fixing the problems of the home, helping the family get the supports they needed, those kids would be better off. There's no question in my mind. But that's paying for poverty on the front end, and it's just not the American way. We have a very, very frayed uh, social safety net. Um, I know that the UK has struggled with it as well, but it, it's better in the UK than it is in the United States by a long stretch. You say in the book, or you, you just said to me earlier, you know, you you never stopped reporting. Have you stopped reporting now? Are you still following Dasani? I think it's the book ends in, is it 2021? I think is the last entry, round about the time she turns 18, so about three years ago. Are you in touch? What's her reaction to the book? How are her family doing? Actually, the last scene of the book is in 2021, I believe. It's last year. The very, very last moment in the book. Yes, I'm in touch with her often. I probably text with her every other day still. I see them, and I hope to stay in their lives. I don't imagine this to be a chapter that just ends where I 
have no further connection with this family that taught me so much and with whom I went through so much, I witnessed so much. I see this book as an act of witness more than anything. And I don't think a witness should just bail <laughs> after, the, after the act of witnessing. I think you, you form bonds and, and they know my children and I, I really hope to stay in their lives. Your subtitle is Poverty, Survival and Hope. How much hope did you feel this story gives us? I think this story is filled with hope. This is the thing that I most want to convey, is it is not a bleak story. It is not. It is a story that has a lot of moments of sorrow and even tragedy. And yet the through line for me was one of joy, of comedic relief. I laughed more than anything else. I experienced every emotion available to me through the course of this reporting, but the one that I most commonly felt was joy in their presence. These are just intrinsically hopeful people pushing up against tremendous burdens and they're electrifying to be around and I think there's a lot to be learned from them. I think the hope really rests in Dasani in this case because she went to a boarding school to try to quote-unquote escape poverty and what she found was that that meant escaping her community, leaving, cutting ties with her family and that felt like a betrayal to her. And so what she's done is she's returned, she's repatriated herself, and at the same time she's trying to transcend the problems that kept her parents from succeeding. She's trying to have it her own way. She's trying to do all things at once, stay at home while succeeding. So she's in college now, and I think there's a lot of hope to be found in 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 that story and in that outcome because even if it doesn't work out the way that we would hope it does, to use the word hope, in our traditional way of measuring success, it calls us to ask, what is the true meaning of success? How do we define happiness? Is happiness leaving everything you knew, the whole system of survival and love that you grew up depending on, to achieve these material markers that the rest of society will, will, will acknowledge as successful? Or is it to stay with your people and, the, and in a place of belonging at the same time as you're reaching for more? Andrea Elliott, thank you very much indeed. listening to the spectators books podcast very much hope you enjoyed it and if you did please do consider rating or reviewing us on the itunes store we'd love to hear from you